Now, CIS, as many of you know, is a Sydney-based public policy research organisation, and we're profoundly committed to promoting the principles of classical liberalism. We oppose, and this is crucially important for this evening's event, attempts to shut down debate over subjects that the sophisticates and the activists alike don't agree with. Let's turn to this evening's panel, and we have a great panel. First, Claire Lehman. She's a founding editor of the online magazine Quillette, and she recently released a collection of essays. It's called 20 Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age. Panics and persecutions and copies are available down the back there. Peter Curdy heads our Culture and Prosperity Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. Peter's been at CIS for more than a decade now, and during the past decade, he's published many CIS publications, including The Tyranny of Tolerance, Threats to Religious Liberty in Australia, and most recently, Cancelled, How Ideological Cleansing Threatens Australia. And finally, our moderator this evening is Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst here at CIS. She's the author of Respect and Division, How Australians View Religion, and most recently, Australians' Attitudes to Social Media, Connection or Curse. And with that, please welcome Monica Wilkie. Thank you all for coming out. It's been a, more than a year since we've seen a lot of you here, and it's going to be a fantastic conversation this evening. So we're going to have a moderated conversation, and then we're going to be going to questions from the audience a little bit later. And I just want to make sure that everyone knows that just because Peter Curdy is my boss, I'm not going to be throwing softball questions at him. So with that, Peter Curdy, in your outstanding report on cancel culture that you wrote last year, <laughs> you, you started off with a definition of cancel culture, and I thought that would be a natural point to start tonight, because often we talk about these things and it runs along, but what are we actually talking about? So what is cancel culture, Peter Curdy? Thanks, Monica. And you can ask any question you like and you'll still have your job tomorrow, I guarantee <laughs> that. Um, cancel culture is the practice um, which involves calls for the removal or the denunciation uh, of mainly people, but it can be objects that are deemed to have uh, transgressed the norms of what it now is known as social justice theory or critical theory. Claire, would you agree or have anything to add? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd broadly agree with that. And the important distinction is that activists or participants in cancel culture lobby a third party. So if they want someone, an academic, to be fired, they will write a petition and deliver it to a university's president. It's about getting a third party to punish an individual that they want punished because they've breached some kind of norm that maybe two years ago was mainstream, but is now beyond the pale for social justice culture. Yes, I agree. I think that's right. And we saw that most recently, for example, in Australia with Margaret Court. Yeah. Um, and the calls were for the arena, Margaret Court arena, to be renamed. So you're yep. right. A, a, a third party was lobbied because of things that Margaret Court was deemed to have said or that, that she does stand for. I agree with that. But if, you, if you're talking about, Claire, <coughs> you, you said, you know, transgressing norms. I mean, is this, is this particularly new? I mean, in the 1970s, Australia had quite a harsh regime of censorship. There were various books that weren't even allowed into the country, you know, um, Port Noise Complaint, Lady Chatterley's Lover. There are stories about how people smuggled these in. So isn't this sort of just a, another version of that? Is it particularly new, what we now call cancel culture? 
It's new. What's new about it is the speed at which the churn is happening and the way the speed at which norms are changing. So it would be perfectly reasonable and normal for uh, a person to say that uh, a trans woman is not a real woman maybe five years ago or ten years ago. If I was to say that now on a, uh, in a public forum such as this one or on I can't be cancelled because I work for myself. But if I were to say that, there, could, there would be outrage and people would be writing petitions and trying to get me cancelled. But so I, for me, what's different is that social media is accelerating the pace of change and what is normal today won't be normal in a year from now and so on and so on. It keeps going. Uh, yes, I would just add to that. I mean, I think social media has allowed this change to happen, but I think we're seeing a particular form um, of uh, what we might just call broadly postmodernism. It's the, it, and it, in its latest form, which has been around for the last 10 or 15 years, the, 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 th the theorists have become activists. And now it's not enough, it is no longer enough for theory to be propounded in the academy, for papers to be written, um, for conferences to be held, uh, and, and for these issues to be confined to the life of the academy. It's spilled out, it's spilled over into, into the, the public realm, and it's, it's driven by activism. And these activists want to bring about change. Uh, and to that extent, I think it's actually more dangerous, because I think it's, it's, it's marked by a revolutionary zeal. But this has emerged from all that's gone before. This is not something new, it's just a, a particular manifestation. If you're saying the activists just want change, then how are, how are the specific cancel culture and the specific things that we're talking about concern you from change movements of the past? I mean, there, there are various movements, you know, to end certain forms of legal discrimination and other such things that us as classical liberals would support. Those things happened about change. You know, the government didn't just hand it to you, society just didn't change without people, you know, working and activists towards that. So how is, how is this different to just another movement of that nature? Peter. Uh, it's very different because in the, uh, in the 70s when for example, the, the, the Race Discrimination Act was passed in Britain, it was 68, I think, in Britain, and in, in here, the Racial Discrimination Act in the 70s. Those changes happened within the, the framework of a secular liberal democracy. And certain uh, principles, certain ways of viewing, uh, of, of understanding truth, uh, a way of, ways of uh, evaluating evidence were generally accepted. What's new now is that, uh, and this is a particular mark of, of the most radical forms of, uh, of cancel culture, of, 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 of social justice theory with a capital S and a capital J, is that uh, objective truth is a concept that's rejected, that, uh, uh, that truth is regarded as something that one makes for oneself and then is determined by one's lived experience, and that knowledge is not something that is, de that is dependent upon reasoned the reasoned formulation and assessment of evidence, but comes from, uh, from feelings, from experience, uh, from spirituality. So th these changes are being advanced from a completely different 
standpoint, to use one of the, the, the coded terms, but from a completely different standpoint from the changes that were advocated for, negotiated and legislated uh, in the 60s and 70s. We've said that activists don't use the term cancel culture. Do you think that they would agree with Peter in the sense that they don't believe in objective truth, it's all about, quote-unquote, lived experience? Is that something that they themselves would advocate for? Uh, well, I think if, if you listen to the language that they use, there's a lot of uh, subjective internal experiences that are sort of held up as being some kind of authority. So if I feel offended or if I'm harmed in one way or another, that trumps another person's right to you know, fair treatment in the eyes of the law. So there's a, it, there's a turn towards uh, emotional reasoning over and above rational reasoning. And I kind of, one way I think about it is, um, it is this emotional reasoning is like uh, a continuation of Carol Gilligan's care ethics. She formulated this uh, idea of moral reasoning where where people, generally caregivers and generally women, uh, care for their children o over and above, you know, other people in their uh, in the in their community in their um, you know broadest sphere. But this caring was sort of all all encompassing, and this form of moral reasoning somehow seems to have been scaled up to higher levels of society, where the the only thing that matters is people that we care for, their subjective feelings, and then other qualities or other moral virtues such as fairness, proportionality, respect for authority, those sorts of other moral values are just, you know, all swept away because we've got this you know, ideology of compassion overruling everything. You, you mentioned the notion of harm there, which has been written about quite a lot, you know, in terms of that's often a justification, you know, this X person or whatever causes harm, so therefore they should be shut down. Peter, isn't, isn't harm a concept that was introduced by our side, in a sense, famously by J.S. Mill? Is that, would, you, would you agree with that, or have they taken that to a certain extreme? Uh, uh, they've taken the word and given it a completely different meaning. And um, Claire, you, 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 you mentioned language just now, and I think language is at the crux of what this is about, and we need to understand the complexities around use of language if we are to begin to get to grips with this phenomenon. Because, we're, and with, I don't want to get to, to, to go down this track too far, but, it, but we can trace it back to the development of the philosophy of language in the course of the 20th century and the emergence of the idea that certain kinds of language belong to certain forms of life or ways of living. Uh, it was Wittgenstein, the later Wittgenstein, who, who argued this, uh, and that can be, one, you know, you can look that up and, and, and read about that, and I think it's actually very interesting. But it was the idea, essentially, that, uh, that language that is used in one context isn't applicable in another context. And what's happened, to distill this, is that the words that you and I might understand uh, like harm, uh, like race, uh, like violence, like oppression, are now used in very different ways to mean other things. And they are used to refer to the experience that somebody has. So anyone can claim, I, I can claim to have been harmed or oppressed by your question, 
uh, it doesn't matter what you intended, my experience of having been on the receiving end of the question is all that matters, and I can use the word, but it, I'm meaning something very different. And I think that's, that in some ways goes to the heart of what this challenge is about for us, because we're trying to engage using, as it were, the language that we know, but the words that we're using no longer mean this. Mm. Uh, they mean something else, and we are being tripped up on that, and this is why I think it makes it very difficult to 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 engage effectively with mm -hmm. this. It's a, it's a real challenge, I think. An important paper came out a few years ago by a Melbourne psychologist called Nick Haslam, and it's on uh, con what he calls concept creep in yes. psychology in particular, and it's an excellent paper, and he looks at how harm, the, the terms harm, disorder, addiction, abuse and trauma have become diluted over time. Their definition has expanded both vertically and horizontally to include things that two decades ago we would never consider to be traumatic or harmful. And he, uh, he gives very concrete examples. So neglect, you know, neglect of children didn't used to be considered a form of child abuse, now it is. Things like um, sex addiction didn't used to be considered addictions, now they are. So these terms keep expanding and expanding and expanding. And so now we're getting to um, a situation where activists, I don't know if they do this in Australia, but at least in the United States, you will see um, signs saying, silence is violence. <laughs> you know, you've got this expansion and, and, and you, you'll, you'll hear terms such as epistemic violence. If I disagree with your argument, I've committed epistemic violence against you. So I've got this horrible um, disfiguration of the English language and you're absolutely correct in that it's tripping us up because, you know, if you take uh, a word like racism, it used to mean something quite specific. It used to mean that you are discriminating against someone according to their race, sort of proactively against an individual. Now it means uh, if you're a white person and you don't admit that you're a racist just by virtue of being white, then you're a racist. It's changed its meaning to That's being right. completely... Pa it used to be an <coughs> action, now it's just a passive it's sort a of mystical, magical thing that's just in the air, and if we don't, uh, if we don't acknowledge that it's there, then we're racist. So it, this disfiguration of the language is a huge part of what's going on, and yes. uh, it, 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 I think it's key for us to identify how the language is being disfigured to properly address it and neutralise it. Mm, I think that's right. <coughs> in addition to be able to understand this disfiguring of language in order to address it. Does the disfiguration of language also, in a way, create almost a false consensus around these things? So, you know, if you ask the average person, you know, do you want to reduce racism? You know, this is causes harm, should we yes. end it? Because a lot of people don't know about this. Most people are good. The instinctive answer is yes. Yes. But Claire, don't, don't you think people are getting trapped in that as well? Yeah, and there's a rhetorical trick um, called the Mott and Bailey, where you have, I might get it, I might get the Mott and the Bailey confused, but the, the, the idea is that, um, uh, that soldiers would go down and fight either in the Bailey or the Mott, and then 
when, and then when they were under attack, they would retreat into their more safe position. What's a, what's a crazy argument that a social justice theorist might present? Well, you, you, you get the really vague, like, we just want a fairer society, we just want, you know, well, I, I, think, I think probably around Black Lives Matter is probably some of we, the best we examples. They say, you know, we want a fairer society and then that's followed up by defund the police. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Defund the police is a perfect example. We wanted, that would be the crazy argument. We want to defund the police. And then when people say, well, actually, hang on, maybe we shouldn't defund the police. The return argument is, why are you so racist against black people? So there's this rhetorical trick where a crazy argument is put forward and if you disagree with it, they retreat into the sensible argument that everybody already agrees with. Um, there's many examples like that. So we've talked you know, about cancer culture and you know, Black Lives Matter and defund the police and that sort of thing. So Peter, what is the actual impact of these things? You know, we, we haven't talked too much about it, specific examples, but what concerns you specifically about people or objects or something being cancelled and why, why is that a problem? Oh, well, a lot of things worry me about this, but I think, I think why it's a problem is that it, um, first of all, it sows discord because it sets people against each other. Somebody might say, but I'm not a racist, and, and the response that it, it's met with is, oh, but you are a racist, you just don't know it. And so, so discord breaks out between people. And then it becomes harder for us to, to discuss things as a, as a community, as a society. And so social cohesion is threatened because we are all, we are, we are disagreeing about different things. Um, and, and the meaning, coming back to the language, the, the meaning slips away from us. And I think as social cohesion breaks down, uh, or is, is, is comes under threat, so it makes community life much harder and harder for us as a society to, to, to engage and have the sorts of discussions and political debates, the economic debates, the political debates that we need to have as a society because we end up talking past each other. Uh, so I think it's 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 very dangerous. I mean, uh, in one sense, you know, we we it's sort of slightly comical that a brand of cheese has to be renamed, or that an ice cream has to be renamed. I think it's 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 offensive when uh, statues are, are, are torn down because I think that is um, that suggests that somehow there's a, an objective standard of uh, of truth, which of course critical justice theorists. Uh, deny there is no such thing as objective truth, but there's like there's a standard truth by which everything in the past can be judged. And I think that's that's very troubling. And once we start to move into that territory, um, we who, who is safe from that? Who is safe from that kind of judgment? So I think it can begin from the slightly comical uh, and irritating to the profoundly threatening, and then it becomes uh, much more dangerous when people themselves are torn down for expressing uh, points of view. I mean, Claire, on just picking up on the point that Peter made there, I mean, which cancellations should we be concerned about? I mean, you know, you can have a laugh about, you know, changing the name of cheese and all that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, that's still the same product. You can go into the supermarket and buy it, whatever you like. But when you talk about people losing their jobs, losing book deals, and that, that's just the ones that we know about. I mean, we all know stories of people who work in certain businesses that keep mum on those sort of things. So is some of, you know, talking about the names of brands, should we be less focused on that and more focused on people and their careers? 
Yeah, I think, and one argument that uh, the deniers, cancel cancel culture deniers have is that people are cancelled and then they can go on and, and have lucrative careers writing books and, you know, creating podcasts and so on and so forth. And that's true up to a point. But when they leave their industry, whether it's academia or some kind of artistic community, other people are left behind and they remain terrified because they don't want to lose their jobs and they don't want to be sacked. And so I'm less concerned about... I am concerned about people being cancelled who aren't famous, but I'm less concerned about the big famous individuals who we all know about and all hear about because it's true, they will be fine. But it's the everyday people who have a mortgage, who have kids to feed, who can't say mainstream normal opinions in their workplace because they're scared of getting fired. Now, on an on a personal individual level, it's upsetting to me that people have to live their lives in fear. On a uh, on a broader scale, I don't want to live in a society where people aren't speaking the truth. How can we how can we get better? How can we invent new things? How can we have better scholarship, better ideas if everybody's inhibiting themselves and no one is speaking the truth and sharing ideas and coming up with, you know, if you're going to come up with a scientific theory that changes the world, you've got to have the freedom to make mistakes. And what I fear is that we're creating a culture where we don't have that freedom. We don't have the freedom to make mistakes. We don't have the freedom to come up with hypotheses. We don't have the freedom to talk to each other uh, and share ideas and make mistakes and redeem each other and, and, and forgive each other. We're just losing that freedom and that will create a stagnant, dying culture. Mm. I mean, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a good point there. And Peter, I think, I mean, sometimes when these cancellations come up, the, you know, particularly notable people, you'll find the soon after the grovelling apology, which is never enough, you know, no matter what you do, if you say, you know, sorry, you're, you're still probably going to get cancelled. Are we living in a society without forgiveness? And then what's the possible consequences of that? Uh, well, yes, I think, uh, because I think you can never apologise enough. You can, you can never be forgiven for, for a transgression. Um, and the, the vilification can continue, I agree. You know, if, you're, if you're rich enough, like J.K. Rowling, um, you, you probably can, can not worry about it too much. But... Uh, I think it does create a climate of fear, and I think that w- we we end up living with this kind of terrible uncertainty. I think, uh, and that's the that's the that's why it is such a, a systemic threat to the to the kind of society we we believe that we live in and that we want to uphold. Uh, so I think, I mean, to answer your question, I think that um, that the challenge for us is to, I think, have the confidence to seize the debate and argue it on our own terms and not feel that we always have to be dragged uh, onto the other side of the net, as it were, to try to argue it on the terms in which it's advanced, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you think, Claire, there are some optimistic signs that we are seizing the debate? I mean, you've got now in America the conservative outlet, the Daily Wire, which has become very popular. After Gina Carano was fired from Disney, they immediately picked her up and they're now having a movie deal with her and they're saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep doing this. So is it is it almost now that's that's a business model of 
you know, well, you know, if you get cancelled here, we'll pick you up here. And if people like our product, then they're going to come to us and leave Disney and all these other major networks if you keep cancelling people. Yeah, I think there are some positive signs and, I mean, it's easy to be overcome with pessimism about all of this, but there are some positive signs. Um, so in the United States, uh, one large technology company put out a statement saying to all of the, its employees, leave your politics at the door. We don't want activism here. This is our, our company's mission. This is our mission statement. And I think that will be a model, that is a model going forward for not just companies, but any organisation that wants to survive um, this period of upheaval. I think organisational leaders have to figure out what the values are for their company and put forward a mission statement like the CEO of Coinbase did. I think what happened at Minter Ellison here in Australia is a positive sign and that might be looked, I mean it's in Australia, but that might actually be looked at at other places around the world where people, organisational leaders realise that actually they need to stand for something. They need to stand, their company has to have a set of values, they need to know what they are and they need to not fall in a pack of, like a pack of cards anytime an, an activist or a social media mob or a, uh, you know, some kind of upheaval happens in its junior staff. I mean, people just basically have to grow a spine, particularly in organisations. Peter, was uh, the CEO of Minter Ellison cancelled? Well, I wish I could be as optimistic as Claire on this. Um, I, I think that the Minter Ellison affair was a, uh, is a false dawn. I think there was a managing partner who was not a lawyer um, who managed to make a major law firm look stupid, and I think she had to go. Um, but it wasn't because of the, the, her particular views about um, about the, the matters of the case concerning Christian Porter. It just made a law firm look stupid. It looked, they looked silly. And she had to go because otherwise their reputation as a law firm would have been harmed and, uh, and the bottom line would have been harmed. So I don't think she was cancelled. I think, she was, um, I think she, was, she was fired. You can be censored without being cancelled, but being cancelled is a form of censorship. But the reason I'm less optimistic than Claire is that I think that I mean, yes, it, companies may put out these sorts of statements, and, and I think we've yet to see some of that happening in this country yet. But I'm concerned about the, the, the people who are, being, who are pouring out of universities, who have been indoctrinated in this sort of stuff, for, I mean, by which I mean critical theory, social justice theory, for a long time now. Now, they are the people who are going to be working in personnel departments. They're going to be working in, as diversity officers. They're going to be people who are... Uh, monitoring their own workspace, they bring with them the, 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 the whole mental framework of, of oppression, of epistemic violence, of, of social justice. Uh, they are looking for things, they will be looking for things, and if they don't find them in the workplace, I don't think they'll say, oh, well, this place isn't for me, I better go and look somewhere else. That's not what activists do. Activists want to change, and they want to revolutionise, and they want to overthrow. And I think if there is a company that seems not to be uh, sufficiently radicalised, then they w the activists will, will bring their, 
their, um, their weaponry to bear. I hope I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm less optimistic mm -hmm. about this. In fact, I think it's, a, a it is one of the most serious issues we face as a culture, because I think, I mean, I think there is a, there is a, a chink in the, there is a, ch there is a, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, which we can talk about later, but I'm, si I'm, I'm pessimistic about this, because I think it's, a, it's a, 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 a very, very pervasive cultural change that has been brewing for a long time, and we're seeing a particular manifestation of it now. I see no evidence that it's going to stop. If, if you're talking particularly about the workplace as well, Claire, is, isn't this particularly what millennials and young people want? I mean, you know, you, you see, you know, all these corporations putting out various statements. I mean, in, in America, supporting Black Lives Matter. In here, you always have it around around Mardi Gras and, and those sort of things. Don't people, empl new employees, want these companies to do that? So all their incentives are in the direction to cater to that that audience. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and particularly. Uh, you know, technology companies and companies that need to employ younger people for, you know, marketing reasons, you know, because they do marketing and digital technology and that kind of thing. Um, I do think, however, there's enough young people who aren't ideologues and who just want to work and just want a job that corporate leaders can have a mission statement that isn't aligned with social justice and and find good employees. I think one one of the things I have a problem with it, with the current discourse around cancel culture and social justice culture is you know all of the blame is put on young people and they certainly have their problems but the spinelessness of baby boomers <laughs> When it comes to dealing with that, just boggles my mind. Like university presidents just, you know, just uh, groveling and, and 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 submitting to the demands of children. And you know, a, a recent episode in the United States was um, the deputy editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association was on a podcast, and he said he voiced a very reasonable reasonable opinion in which he said he's not a fan of this idea of structural racism because he doesn't think all white people are racist by virtue of being white. Now that poor guy, a doctor, is now fired from his position as deputy e editor of the journal and the editor-in-chief is, is on administrative leave but he put out this groveling apology, apologising for not being educated enough about racism. This guy is a doctor. He's probably relatively senior in his career. He should know better. So my, I mean, I understand that there are, there is a cohort or a generation of ideologues coming out of universities, but the elders in our community Need to stand. Need to understand what their values are, if they have any, and start standing up for them. That's my view. <laughs> uh, Peter, as the elder and baby boomer on the panel, is it all your fault? <laughs> no. Would you? Would you? Do you think that the the problem is that when these activists make these demands, there's not a cool voice from above saying no? Well, they don't because they're <laughs> they're frightened and they don't want to be. Uh, they want to be called out. I mean, I agree. I think it, it's a, it's a, a form of spinelessness, um, and 
I think one of I, there, there was some, uh, Douglas Murray wrote about this in the Spectator recently about the about the Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Church of England to which I was ordained some 35 years ago, uh, that has become the most incredibly woke organisation. And Welby, I, and I, it's just astonishing to me. Welby is apologising for all kinds of sins that the Church of England is supposed to be guilty of, and I think it's. It's disappointing and dispiriting to see that kind of supine leadership, or that the leadership being exercised in such a supine way, I should say. I think it's, uh, there's a lot of fear, a degree of spinelessness. And I don't, it, it's, it, it mystifies me because I don't know, I, I wonder where, what is Welby looking at? I mean, John Sintamu, the recently retired Archbishop of York, was black. There are black bishops in England. There are black women bishops in the Church of England. Uh, there are black clergy. The church has rich ministries uh, in, the, in, 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 if I can use this term, interracial ministries and inter-ethnic ministries. I'm wondering what is it that somebody like Justin Welby sees that leads him to utter these pronouncements? Is it, does he believe it or does he just not want to get caught out? And if it's the latter, if it's the former, I, I despair. If it's the latter, then I think he needs to, you know, muscle up as it were. I, I think the spinelessness is, is very troubling that nobody's prepared to say enough. Speaking of being uh, caught out, I thought I'd just change tack slightly for a second and ask the question sort of broadly of what isn't cancel culture? Because often when we talk about cancel culture, you know, a, com a comment you hear back is, you know, well, you don't care about this person being fired or you don't care about this person who's been fired. But surely there are some circumstances in which a firing is warranted. I mean, we just briefly spoke about Minta Ellison. There was a slight disagreement, but, you know, could probably agree that they're good for the CEO to go. Other examples of, you know, certain, certain behaviour by people, Claire, isn't it? Isn't in many circumstances people do deserve to be fired? Uh, well, I, I, one thing that gets confused with cancel culture is criticism. So I publish articles that are critical of public figures and so on, and I've been accused of trying to cancel them. So I think there's, there's sometimes a conflation between criticism and trying to get someone fired or cancelled. They're not the same thing, like any... You, you know, if you want to be in the public sphere, you have to be able to withstand criticism. But it's not the same thing as having a thousand of your colleagues sign a petition asking your boss to fire you. They're two separate things. Um, and, and when it comes to people being fired, I mean, I just look to the reasonable person standard in the law. I mean, if you're going to be a repeat offender and... Uh, harass people in the workplace, sure, I mean, you should be fired. But it's not, that's not really my, you know, workplace law is not really my area. But, yeah, I would just take the reasonable person standard. That, that's often something here as well when you bring up these examples. It's, oh, well, you know, they're private companies. They can do whatever they like. But that, that sort of cuts the conversation a little bit short, doesn't it? It's like, okay, maybe legally, yes, Claire, but, you know, do we want to live in this society? You know, if someone who, like Peter said, they're a talk show host, they're doing their job, mm -hmm. and you just immediately get the, the plug pulled on you. Yeah, and, and I think it's disappointing any time someone, either on the left or the right, because, you know, peop people on the left get fired for tweeting things, insensitive things as well. Um, 
and I believe there should be a mandatory cooling down period. Like if you've tweeted something that's caused outrage, there should be a mandatory four-week cooling down period. Your boss cannot fire you for four weeks. And if he or she is still angry about it four weeks later, then maybe. But I really, I, I really dislike this thing where people say something like make a bad joke and then you hear that they're fired within 24 hours. It seems totally unfair to me because, you know, we, sh we should all be able to make a bad joke once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe have a quota of lifetime bad jokes. <laughs> that could be a good one. I mean, we obviously, Claire, you run Quillette uh, at the Centre for Independent Studies. We talk a lot about these things, but I, I would be interested, first I'll go to you, Peter, in what do you think that we can do about this? I mean, particularly in America where these things are probably a lot hotter. I mean, the sort of... You, you kind of see almost a tit for tat now. So, you know, Disney fires Gina Carano, then, you know, boycott Disney is trending. And that's sort of happening a lot. You see these decisions are made. And then there's a calling for a boycott or not using a certain product. Do you think that is a helpful way to deal with it? For example, if people say, you know, okay, if Disney or whatever wants to play the cancel culture game, we're just not going to use your product. And then people are advocating for that. Do you think that's a a good way to deal with it? Well, I think consumer choice is always very important and we want to maintain a free market so that there is a free exchange of goods, but I think it becomes harder when corporations um, fall into line one with another and decide that they're not going, they, that they watch what happens, they see what happens to uh, a dairy company or a shampoo company and they think, well, we don't want to get caught out, we better get in ahead of the game. And it's driven often, I think, by campaigners on the one hand, but also by um, by the, the, the diversity people who crew these, uh, these companies. But I think there is something that we can do. I think it's, it's a difficult challenge, but I think what's important to understand about, about um, critical theory is that there is, at, a, at its heart, uh, a, a contradiction because it propounds, it, it rejects, theory rejects the idea of objective truth. There is no such thing as objective truth because my truth is based on my lived experience as is your truth. That's based, your, based on your lived experience. Um, and, it's, I, and, and it's one of the reasons why it's such a serious assault on, uh, on the, the, the traditions, the institutions, the thought processes of the West. There's this rejection of objective truth. But that in itself means, in turn, means that it's very hard to... Uh, to establish any sense of the objective truth of theory. It's entirely subjective. I mean, I think in its most recent form, um, there's been a certain amount of what's often called rarefication, that the, the subjective has been asserted with such aggression that it's almost, it almost assumes the form of an objective truth. But at its heart, because of its... Uh, because of the, the, the cultural relativism that it embraces, this idea of, of the, the plasticity of language and the fact that, uh, uh, that boundaries between objective and subjective truth are blurred, there is hope for us because I think it means that we can argue against it and we can stand against it, but what we mustn't do is try to do so on the terms of theory. We have to do so on our own terms, using our own frames of reference uh, and, and our own... Uh, our own intellectual armory. I don't think we can do this on, on their terms. So Claire, would you, would you agree that because of the 
culturalism as other when people call for things like boycotts or even even boycotts. I mean, after the whole colonial brewing beer company, their sales went through the roof because people wanted to support them. Do you think those things are sort of a distraction and not actually getting at the heart of the problem? I think we have to be wary of um, copying the tactics. You know, if we're against cancel culture and against censorship, we shouldn't emulate those kinds of tactics. And it's sad. I, I'm disappointed when I see people who are, you know, who want to fight fire with fire. I think you can always go to a higher ground. And I would just say that, you know, it's really easy to be overcome with pessimism in this current cultural climate, but there are opportunities to be seized at the same time. That, you know, I see it with the decline in um, news media organisations, particularly in the United States. They're becoming so insular and closed and they're hiring activists to do this journalism, which is going down in prestige in everybody's eyes. I mean, it's a fantastic opportunity for new organisations, new companies, new societies to emerge with people who are genu genuinely committed to the principles that made you know, that got us to a liberal democratic society. So open inquiry, freedom of speech, civil debate. It's, it, there are opportunities for new growth. Uh, and I think we should, you know, it's a, a particularly concerning time, but we still live in a free society. And when you can still make new companies or s can still create a new educational institution, you can still create a think tank, grab that opportunity while you still can. Before I go to my um, last question, we'll go, we'll, uh, we'll go to que um, questions from the audience after I ask my question, so just get yourselves nice and ready. So final, final question that I'll throw at you to sort of continue either down the optimistic or pessimistic route. I mean, are things going to get worse? I mean, at, at the moment, the sort of favourite phrase is that they're eating their own. I mean, you know, at, there was just a thing at Teen Vogue where the editor, incoming editor was fired because of tweets and then one of the people who was calling for her firing was also fired. So, <laughs> Peter, are, are things, are things going to get a lot worse before they get better? I, I think they are likely to get worse before they get better, but I do think that as long as there are people like you and organisations like Quillette who make a determined stand and make sure that points of view are aired and that you're not cowed into silence, as long as there are people who are prepared to um, act with courage, then I think there's hope. Um, but I think it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be hard, it's going to be a tough slog because it doesn't take much for the forces to be turned against uh, a, an organisation or an institution or a person. But I think uh, my pessimism is not, doesn't derive from the fact that I don't think anybody is doing anything. It's that I think that the, the patterns of our, pat our way of life, which, I mean, by which I really mean Western civilization, is, is under grave threat. Now, I think we have to be, if we care about it, we have to be courageous and stand up and defend it. Um, I'm optimistic to the extent that there are people and organisations who do that, and, and, and long may that be the case. And I have to say, I mean, Quillette is one, the Centre for Independent Studies is, is, uh, is another. And I think we need to embrace the freedom uh, and the principles of freedom that we stand for and live by them. Do you think they're going to keep eating their own, Claire, before we can get out of it? <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's interesting because they're not the 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 woke ideologues and the activists can't 
produce art or culture that anyone wants to buy or consume. So their books don't sell, whereas Jordan Peterson can sell five million copies. So I think there's, you know, there's something in that. that it has to die out because it's boring. They don't produce any art or any you know, literature that we want to consume. Like it, it's, it's just going to die because people find it tedious and boring and totalitarian. And so you know, I'm optimistic that it will run out of steam on its own accord. But as Peter says, we have to remain vigilant. Yeah. And what worries me the most is if this ideology gets into our legal system, then I think we're in, we'll be in bad shape. So mm, We'll be in bad shape. Let's see if the audience can make us more or less <laughs> pessimistic. Um, I believe, do we have roving microphones, Max? So if I think um, James Phillips' hand was up first, so I'll go that way first. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I was a bit preemptive there. I thought I'd better be. The, um, it seems to me a very important question in this uh, debate because of the fact that people from anywhere uh, right of centre are very underrepresented in uh, American uh, universities, educational institutions, but also many of the cultural institutions, including much of the media. Uh, how American liberals um, respond to this is uh, really vitally important. Uh, so far, they've just been letting the sort of um, ultra-progressives or social justice warriors take all the oxygen out of the left side of um, American politics. Uh, and wonder if the panel sees any signs of hope that uh, liberals might start reasserting some sort of rationality uh, and um, liberal discourse from, from the left of centre in America. Claire, you're, you're quite involved with, through Quillette with, you know, you have a large American audience. Do you want to take that one first? Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting question and uh, can s the way I think of it is the centre-left versus, you know, a lot of these battles are between the centre-left and the hard-left. And I think that the centre-left have been quite defenceless when it comes to attacks on it from the hard left and, and I think one of the reasons for that is because over the past few decades the liberal left or the centre left have redefined itself as being morally and politically concerned with compassion above all else, caring for the marginalised above all else. And they don't have to be you know, radicals or, you know, neo-Marxists or whatever. But if your overriding moral and political orientation is to just care for people or care for marginalised groups, it's very difficult for you to withstand attacks from radical activists who demand that you um, address their harm or address them, uh, 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 ameliorate the harm that they they have somehow encountered. So I think the problem with the, the liberal left or the centre left is that because they don't have a framework other than this ideology of compassion, they are defenceless when it comes to the exploitation of the progressive. So, and, and you can see it with liberal left or centre left institutions, one by one they're all falling to this woke ideology. And even in the business world, uh, I, you know, I hear from venture capitalists that unless an organisation is explicitly classically liberal or conservative, 
or anti-woke, they just fall, they just succumb to this ideology because they're, ha they're depleted, they, have no, they no, have no sense of moral authority other than this ideolo ideology of compassion and that makes them weak, makes them open to exploitation by these activists. Just the lady at the back there, yep. Hi, thanks for having us here. Um, Claire, you spoke a lot about the spinelessness of uni administration. I'm a uni student and I have seen it firsthand. Last year I tweeted that the uni taught colonialism in a biased way and the uni tried to suspend me for that. And I saw firsthand how the uni was set up to punish students that disagreed with the typical thoughts of the uni. And my question is, you said that, you know, you can start think tanks and we should start uh, finding ways to create movements that fight back against the spinelessness of the universities. But as a student who doesn't have access to um, millions of dollars to fund a think tank and who isn't a uni administrator, what can we do to help rally people that are the quiet Australians that are too scared to speak out against um, the mob mentality? And is, is there anything that young people or just people that don't have those access to all the funds to make all those big changes can do? Yeah, great question. Um, and, and I completely sympathise with your position. And uh, th yeah, I completely... And it's terrible that you would try, your university tried to censure you. I would say to someone in your position that uh, you might feel powerless within your immediate community, which is your university, but if you start a blog or a newsletter and a social media account, you can actually reach people all over the world. That's what I did with Quillette. It w just started as my own personal blog and I set up a, a way to capture people's emails, so I did a newsletter and you know now we get three million hits a month. So you can you can take it in small steps. And there are uh, you know you don't have to start a magazine, but there are ways to get your message across to have your voice heard if it's not recognised in your immediate community. You might find that what you have to say um, will be listened to by other people in Australia if you go and publish an op-ed in the newspaper or if you write a newsletter and you share it online. There are ways to communicate with people outside of that immediate community. And I'm not necessarily advocating for activism within the university because you just want to be able to get your degree and you know, get through. But just because you feel powerless within that particular context doesn't mean there, are other, there aren't other avenues to have an impact. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, thank you for your question, and uh, I think it's a really important one. Colonial, well, you will know this from your own lived experience, as it were. Colonialism is one of the hot-button topics. Um, and I would encourage you, I, I completely uh, support what Claire says, and I would encourage you to, to take that advice, but also to read widely. To don't be restricted by the, the, the reading that you're recommended at university. Read widely. There are people who are writing intelligently and thoughtfully about these sorts of matters. The issues of colonialism and empire are really, in my view, interesting, albeit contentious topics. So make yourself well informed and make it your business to be informed. And that, I think, will give you a great deal of confidence as your own understanding matures, particularly since you've had this experience. So good luck to you. Simon. Um, a lot's been spoken tonight about the process of cancel culture 
But if you look at... I'm, I'm interested in finding out what you guys think is the end game of cancel culture. Because if you actually look at a lot of the behaviour of it, it seems to be a grasp for power by a group of people who normally would not survive in any reasonable meritocracy. And yet by using cancel culture, they all of a sudden get an amount of power which even Rupert Murdoch would envy because of what they're able to do to society. What do you think of that grasp for power and do you think that's the end point of cancel culture? Peter, is it just a power grab? I think that power is part of it. I, I think it's certainly a, a revolutionary exercise that seeks to tear down and to replace what are deemed unjust structures with just structures. But I think it is ultimately destructive. And I think the end game is, and Claire has touched on this, I think there will be the barrenness of, um, a, of a landscape that's been destroyed. There will be nothing that's created or generated. And I think in time, I don't know how long that will be though, but I think in time, it will be seen to have been, uh, uh, the, will be understood to, for the, for the uh, for the barren, uh, taken to be the barren and destructive and revolutionary force that it is. And I think like many revolutions, I mean, it, uh, eventually revolutions play out and, they're, they're, and the energy that sustains them plays out. It happened with the French Revolution, um, it, hap it happened with, um, with Marxist regimes in 30-odd years ago. Um, so we've seen the, the revolutionary zeal of communism not be extinguished completely, but we've seen it, we've seen it uh, diminish and peter out. And I think in time this will happen, but I think it will leave a lot of destruction uh, in its wake, I have to say. Yes, sir. Down the front. Hi, Ray Hood, uh, CIS member. Um, just as a first comment, I'm a, a broadcaster on a fairly well-known uh, community station and I do find I have to self-censor. It's a music show, but there's certain things I want to go into. But that's anyway, just by the by. First off, I just want to comment really for discussion, both Douglas Murray, uh, the writer of the excellent book, The Madness of Crowds, and publisher Conrad Black have recently commented on how Emmanuel Macron in France has uh, made a stand for French values against what he described as uh, American cultural suicide. And um, he's uh, said there's not going to be no statue toppling in France, and there has not been. And also, surprisingly, the Academy in France has not opposed Macron. They've remained silent or supported him, basically, which is surprising given that postmodernism and Derrida, etc., all came from France. Um, and Spain is not going to uh, cancel bullfighting. It's not going to cancel the bull run. I think in Russia and China, they wouldn't even know what woke meant. Um, so really is, is what we're seeing, this, this cultural, social dogmatism, I guess you would call it, or woke, whatever, is it a product really of the Anglo-Saxon countries and the, really the middle class and the upper middle class of those countries, the Anglophone countries? It's not going on in the rest of the world. Claire? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it comes from the upper class of, Amer of the United States, particularly the, the elite colleges, the elite liberal arts colleges. You can see ground zero of this ideology, the woke ideology as being like maybe Yale. Uh, I think postmodernism was most popular in Yale back in the 80s. And the French 
you know, they know who Foucault is. They know he was a pederast. They know he supported the Ayatollah. But the Americans are in, you know, in thrall of the French philosophers because they're somewhat exotic. They're somewhat, you know, different. Um, but so it's the very elite colleges and that the problem has been that because the rich kids at these Ivy League colleges are going around doing these behaviours on social media, you know, petitioning and organising protests and that kind of thing, because they're rich and from the Ivy Leagues, it's sort of trickled down because it's seen as prestigious and, uh, you know, the cool kids are doing it. So it's, cop you know, people conform and copy. And, and of course, America has this huge uh, cultural impact all over the world. We published an essay on Quillette about how America used to export Coca-Cola and action movies and now it exports cancel culture. <laughs> but I think the French have it right and, and the more uh, pushback that happens from either France or other European countries, the more you know, the, the other countries will copy as well. So I think Macron's shown great global leadership on this issue and I salute him for it. Yes, up back there. Hi, just a question to the panel in terms of the social isolation that comes with being cancelled, but also just in terms of having views that would not necessarily be exactly as those of your friends. I've graduated with a Bachelor of Arts. Most of my friends um, share a lot of these woke views. And um, while, you know, I would consider myself a centrist, I feel further and further far away from them. And it's hard to express your views amongst friends. It's extremely isolating and I wonder how a young person coming into this world and this new generation of woke is supposed to go forward and express their opinion, not silence themselves completely and risk losing essentially entire social networks and potentially your job. Peter, how do people, young people balance that? As the oldest person on the panel. As the oldest person on the panel. Thank you. I think it's, I think it's an important question. Um, and I don't have a pat answer, but I think that if one, if one, one reads history, you can see that there are people throughout history who have taken a courageous um, stand and a, a stand that has led them to be quite isolated from, from their colleagues. I'm just reading um, Richie Robertson's magnificent but monumental history of the Enlightenment. It's a vast book, but, but um, an amazing book. And it's, it's such a rich history of this century. He takes the century 1690 to about 1780 or 1790. When we see how intellectual life flourished and people contended with popularity and ostracism and censorship uh, and vilification, but they remained true to their principles. And when they, when they and in doing so, maintained their integrity, even though there was some high personal cost. Um, so I think taking inspiration from the figures of the past is, is an important thing to do. And to remember that, that one's own integrity is actually something that one should never compromise, because that's, that's what we have, that's what we live by. We are who we are, and if we stand, if we remain true to who we are, and, and, and work to, to act with integrity, then I think uh, we grow in stature, we grow in strength, and, and I think we can 
and to fail to do so uh, or, or to, to give in is actually leads to a form of self-diminishment, I think. I mean, Claire, you spoke before about the impact of various French philosophers on this. Do you think there is an impact of communism as well? Oh, of course there is. And, um, you know, the, co the, the, the way... It's like a, the Marxist framework of looking at the world, you know, with the oppress, oppressor class versus the oppressed class and the way it simplifies the world into sort of black and white. Uh, you know, of course, it, it has this tremendous influence on social justice theory and culture. Uh, I don't agree... I, I think it's complicated and I don't think there's some kind of top-down global plan to enforce communism around the world. I don't subscribe to that kind of thinking, but I do think that the Marxist framework in its simplicity is very seductive to almost every generation that comes through. And it's like each generation has to fight back against it because it is so seductive and it is it simplifies the world so much and it's so alluring for people who can't cope with the uncertainty and the, the chaos and the randomness of the world, we have to keep fighting it every generation and it, because it just doesn't seem to die. Uh, so I, I agree up to a point. I do, I do think that Marxism, Marxist framework is uh, terribly influ influential at the moment, even though it might not look like it because we're not talking about materialism and, and, and class, we're talking about race and gender. The way it views the world is basically the same. Claire, in 60 seconds or less, is it time to make social media companies, you know, live by the First Amendment and, and those sorts of things? Is it time to have legal remedies against some of these cancellations? That's a huge question. I'm not sure I can answer in 60 seconds. Uh, I think the it's a can of worms. I think, I personally, I believe in breaking up some of the social media companies, and that's not a terribly classical liberal view, but I think there's, there's too much power in the hands of too few. Uh, and But then in breaking up, we potentially would get more diversity. That's just my view. Peter, do you, think do you think it's time to have legal remedies against some of these things? I'm a bit agnostic about this. I'm afraid I, I'm a pretty light user of social media myself, so I don't have... I don't... I don't engage really deeply with the issue. I think that... Um, We've seen this pattern of, uh, of, of com industrial and commercial development being repeated since the 19th century and the rise of huge companies in the United States like Standard Oil. Uh, and every so often a company becomes large, it dominates, it attracts political attention, and then um, uh, the lawmakers act. I'm, I'm sure that is going to happen now, but I think it's much harder to regulate social media than it is to deal with uh, a company that makes gasoline. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Monica, thank you, and thank you Peter and Claire, and I think it's fair to say that the consensus here was that uh, this cultural push in many Western institutions strikes at liberal values. And I have to say that Tonight we've heard from brave and sound scholars who stand up against this illiberalism of cancel culture. So with that, please join me in thanking Claire Lehman, Peter Curdy and Monica Wilkie.